Hey, this is Brian Johnson with Mid-City Vineyard Church in our weekly teaching podcast. If you want to learn a little bit more about Mid-City Vineyard Church, you can check us out online, midcityvineyard.org, Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard Church, and on Instagram, at Mid-City Vineyard. We're located at 3222 Canal Street. We worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., and we would love to have you anytime uh, you are looking for a place to worship. During uh, the season of Lent, we are in a series entitled Sanctuary, and over the course of these next few weeks, we're talking about how one seeks sanctuary and what kinds of experiences and things one might need to embrace while in that place of sanctuary. And so we're encouraging everyone during this season of Lent, leading up to Easter, to take a little bit of time each day, maybe find a little bit of retreat, a little bit of rest, a little bit of quiet from the noise, and to reflect on some of the things that you're really going through in your life. And so we're going to head right on over uh, to our teaching from this week. Thanks for being with us. Much peace to But today, we are actually uh, kicking off a, a, a new series that we're going to spend the next six weeks in together, uh, because right now, uh, we have just entered into the season of Lent. And if you are not familiar with Lent, or even if, if you are familiar with Lent, there might be certain things about Lent that you you don't really understand. Uh, Many people understand Lent as the time that you give something up uh, between now and Easter. And for many people, especially those who grew up Catholic, you give up up something over Lent and you give up meat on Fridays. And that's why the seafood restaurants are are, uh, uh, jam-packed on Fridays. And uh, but here's the, here's the ultimate thing about Lent. Lent is something that falls on the church calendar, the traditional church calendar. It's the time leading up from Ash Wednesday, right after Fat Tuesday, from Ash Wednesday until Easter. And traditionally, it's the 40-day period in which the church is looking to participate in, so to speak, the sufferings of Christ, as Christ was led into the desert for 40 days of fasting and being tempted uh, by the Satan or darkness or however one wants to look at that. It's that 40 days of uh, leaning into the sufferings of Christ as Christ is moving towards the cross on Good Friday. And that's why a lot of times people give something up because they're like, oh, I'm going to suffer with Christ. Now, most of you aren't thinking, I'm going to give up alcohol for Lent because I need to suffer with Christ, or I'm going to give up Diet Coke for Lent because I'm, I need to suffer with Christ. I mean, we, we've kind of lost the whole understanding of Lent, and, and so now, now there it is. And so really, I encourage people uh, oftentimes, hey, if you're going to give something up for Lent, why don't you uh, kind of engage that in your spiritual practices since we're fully integrated beings and allow that to be something that maybe the Spirit of God can use. Uh, during those those 40 days to really impact you in a particular way and how you connect with the divine and how you connect with creation and how you connect with other people around you. And so one of the things that we're doing uh, for Lent this year, instead of asking folks to specifically give something up, we've created a, a Lent calendar. And if you did not receive one of these a couple of weeks ago, I have some extra ones. But what we're doing each day of the week is we're asking or encouraging people to engage in a particular practice that goes along with our teaching for the week uh, that would allow you to more fully, hopefully, cooperate with what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. 
And so, for instance, I think one of the practices this week is simply take a walk around your neighborhood and spend that time on your walk praying for your neighbors and praying for your neighborhood and praying for your community. So it's things that we can engage in uh, instead of just abstaining from stuff, uh, trying to deprive ourselves. I've never really understood uh, God as to be one who is impressed with our depriving ourselves kind of a thing. You know, like, God, I'm doing this, uh, you know, like fasting, for instance. God, I'm fasting. Do you, do you hear my prayers more that I'm starving myself now? And I don't think that, that it necessarily works that way. Maybe we'll do a whole teaching on fasting one day. But just how might we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and engage in the things that the Spirit is doing in our life? So with that in mind, what I've decided to do is title this, uh, this series over the next six weeks as we're together, Sanctuary. And we're going to call it 40 Days of Sanctuary. It's kind of a, a two-fold thing. Because my invitation to you, and I think this is something that the Holy Spirit's doing with us, is what would it look like to find in your life intentional places of sanctuary over the next 40 days and cooperating with and asking the Holy Spirit, what are you doing in my life as I find these spaces away from the noise, away from the chaos, to see what God is doing and birthing and, and, and bringing about in your life as we're moving towards Easter. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. Sanctuary, historically speaking, uh, we might understand, uh, relates to a place of, we understand sanctuary is a place of safety. So if you know the story of the hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Quasimodo, and he is the hunchback that he's the bell, the bell ringer at, at Notre Dame. And if you're not familiar with this, uh, Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, also wrote uh, The Hunchback. And Quasimoto uh, rescues this, this woman who is wanted by the law by the name of Esmeralda. And he, he takes Esmeralda and he takes her into the Tower of Notre Dame and he cries out, Sanctuary! Sanctuary! Because he knows that this is the place where the authorities cannot get to Esmeralda. Because historically speaking, churches were known as a place of sanctuary. It's a place where you could find reprieve. It's a place where you could find rest. Uh, interesting enough, this must have been a thing for Victor Hugo because he wrote uh, Les Miserables. You might, have, you might be familiar with the movie or maybe you've seen the Broadway. But in Les Miserables, the, uh, the main character, Jean Valjean, takes the, the young girl Colette and he is wanted, Jean Valjean is wanted by the law, Javert. And so he finds himself, in a, he, he runs to a convent and he declares sanctuary. And because as long as he is in the convent, Jean, uh, Javert cannot come into the convent to arrest him. So he's safe in the convent. I'm not sure if you guys followed this story, uh, but uh, last year there was a man in our community here by the name of Jose. Uh, I believe his last name was Torres. And Jose uh, Torres actually was being sought by the immigration uh, ICE, uh, immigration customs, uh, what's the IC, immigration customs and enforcement. So ICE was looking for Jose to deport Jose. And so Jose found sanctuary with our friends across the street at First Grace Methodist Church. And so First Grace converted a, a room in their church so that Jose could live there while he worked to get his papers um, so that he would not be deported. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, and I'm going to unpack the story of Jose a little bit more in, in, in just a second. But those who are driven to sanctuary are not usually driven to sanctuary, finding sanctuary because their life is amazing. Would you agree with that? I mean, people who are seeking sanctuary usually 
are, are trying to find a place of safety, a place of protection. There's something going on in their life. Jean Valjean was wanted by the law for stealing bread, and yet he had to take care of this young girl, Colette, because her mother had died, and he felt like he had this thing he needed to do, and he wanted to do it in such a way that honored God, but also, if you know the story of Jean Valjean, he, he did his business with Javert eventually. Quasimodo, I'm not as familiar with his story, but how about Jose's story? Jose Torres, a man in our community, 31 years old, came to the United States from El Salvador in 2005. And because of money and financial issues, because of the legal system, Jose, since 2005, was not able to find himself in the courts before the judge to actually get his papers to become a legal U.S. citizen. He has a wife. He has two children, ages eight and two. And he's on ICE's radar, but he hasn't had his opportunity in court. And he knows that if ICE catches up with him, he will be deported and he will probably not see his wife or his two daughters ever again. There's a very good chance. And so our brothers and sisters at First Grace said, we'll provide a place for you, a place of safety, so that you can rest here. We will help your family while you're here, while we try to work with you, not to break the law, but to more move you into abiding by the law so that you can work on your papers. And that's exactly what has happened. ICE kind of backed off a little bit, and Jose has been able to now further his process along so that he can actually be uh, a legal citizen. So here's the thing about sanctuary. I want you to keep these stories in mind, because sanctuary is not a cakewalk. When one goes into a place of sanctuary, they go for rest, they go for reprieve, but sanctuary, when you're in a place of sanctuary, you still have to do the hard work of life. You have to kind of deal with your demons, so to speak. When you go to sanctuary, you have to deal with your loneliness. When you go to sanctuary, you have to deal with the difficulty in your life. You have to deal with the trials. You have to work through the sadness and look for hope. There's boredom and there's uncertainty. And there are so many things that take place in the place of sanctuary. Jean Valjean always had to keep working through his stuff. He had to keep dealing with his past in order that he might reconcile his past so that he could eventually, you want to leave sanctuary so that you can re-engage in the reality of life. So how about this? What if, for the next 40 days, as a community of faith, we press into finding rest and finding reprieve in our own souls, in our own lives, in our own everyday activities, finding moments where we can retreat to sanctuary so that we can become more in tune with the difficulties, with the loneliness, with the loss, with the uncertainty, and the things that maybe God wants to really begin to unpack in our lives and help us to process and press into and press through, so to speak. So this works across the board. This economic status, race, ethnicity, age, Kids, I mean, I mean for, for kids, uh, what, what, where for you? You know, they have these new things in school these days, like safe places. Well, that's really sanctuary. Where is your safe place? You know, in, in our house, we've tried to make our bedroom our sanctuary. Because our house is kind of chaotic. And every now and then, you need a reprieve. We have to change the locks every so often for that to actually work.
Again, people don't seek sanctuary because their life is going amazingly well. The irony of it is that sanctuary, the place of rest and peace, gives us space to process. So today, let's look at this for a moment. There's a story of a man by the name of Job in the scriptures. You might be, you might not be familiar with Job, but I want to tell you a little bit about Job and how we might learn a few lessons from Job, because today, the first thing for this week, as we think about sanctuary, what does it look like in our lives to take the difficulty that we're experiencing and to actually learn how to embrace the difficulty in our lives in a healthy, in a divine-centered kind of way? And I think Job gives us a wonderful example. And this is what it would look like this week, finding your place each day, perhaps, of, of sanctuary, whether it's five minutes or, or, or an hour. Maybe the way you find sanctuary is to go take a walk along the bayou and to just devote that time to saying, I'm, 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 just, I'm, I'm looking for reprieve, I'm looking for rest, but even in the space, I'm looking to figure out and, and find out, God, what are you doing in my life, through my life, with the difficulty that I'm experiencing? But let's look at Job first. So Job is a man in the Old Testament scriptures, and I would invite you to to read the book of Job anytime you you get a chance. It's a very weird kind of book, hard to understand. But in the book of Job, what we find is a man by the name of Job who has a very blessed, so to speak, if if you want to look at material possession as blessed, he's very blessed in that way. I don't really consider that to be the telltale sign of blessing. But in the Old Testament scripture, Job seems to see it that way. But Job has, by all earthly standards, I mean, he's very wealthy. He has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of camels. So if you have hundreds of camels, you're considered wealthy by Job's standards. He has lots of goats and oxen and sheep. He has uh, houses and land. He has all these things. He has lots of children. He has ten children, to be exact. And it turns out in Job's life, in the beginning of the book, that uh, tragedy comes upon Job. Lots of tragedy. For instance, uh, enemies attack, and they kill all of his oxen. And and then later, other enemies attack, and and they steal all of his camels. And and yet again, there's another tragedy that comes Job's way. As uh, as a natural disaster comes, as his ten children, they're they're eating and they're drinking, and they're having a party at one of the brothers' homes, and a a natural disaster, a tornado of sorts comes in, and it crushes the house, and all ten of his children are killed in one go. It's, It's freak stuff that's taking place. And Job feels it, and he feels it deeply. And in the book of Job, chapter 3, listen to how Job responds to the tragedy taking place in his life. It says that for a few days, Job was completely silent, and then he broke his silence, and the scripture says that Job cursed his fate. And Job said, Obliterate the day I was born. Black out the night that I was conceived. Let it be like a black hole in space. God, how about you forget that it ever happened? Erase my birthday from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night. And the night of my conception, the devil, let him just take it away. Rip the date off the calendar, delete it from the almanac. Turn that night into nothingness. No sounds of pleasure from that night ever to be heard again. May those who are good at cursing curse that day. He's like calling out those who are, hey, if you're good at cursing, curse the day I was born. Unleash the sea beast. He's getting really serious here. Unleash the sea beast beast, Leviathan against that day I was born. May its morning stars turn like black cinders waiting for a daylight that never comes. 
And why? Because it released me from my mother's room that day. It released me from my mother's room. And it released me into a life filled with trouble. Why didn't I just die at birth? Why couldn't my first breath out of the womb be my last? Why were there arms to rock me? Why were there breasts to feed me? I could be resting right now in peace, asleep forever, feeling no pain, in the company of kings and statesmen in their royal ruins, or with princes in gold and silver tombs. Why wasn't I a stillborn? That would have been better. With all the babies that never saw the light of the day, how lucky are they? Where the wicked no longer trouble anybody, the bone-weary people, they get their long-deserved rest. It's kind of depressing. And that's Job's response. All this crap in my life, all this stuff that's going on, forget the day I was born. I wish it would have never happened. It reminds me of the passage in the uh, Gospel of John when Jesus says, and I've told you this before, but, but Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm going to make a promise to you, and here's the promise. In this world, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Here's the promise. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But there's a second part to the promise. I want you to know that I've overcome the world, and no matter what you go through, I will go through it with you. And so often people think that because they they turn to, to God or they turn to to to, to a higher power or whatever it might be, that all of a sudden now life is, is just going to be, be good and, and pleasant and amazing and bearable. And, you know, I think the hard reality is that life is unpredictable. And life is difficult. And life is challenging. And life is uncertain. And so what sets part people of faith? I would suggest that the one thing that people of faith are looking to is the fact that there is still, I put my faith in the fact that there is hope and that the divine one says, I will go through it with you. It won't all just be popsicles and rainbows and dandelions and unicorns, but I will go through this with you. So what might it look like for us to actually take the difficulty and and to embrace it and maybe to learn something from it? Whatever it is, I mean, we all have it. it. From the youngest child in here, who I believe is 10 years, well, okay. Your baby doesn't count for this one. I'm not much difficulty, hopefully. 10 years old, 7 years old. Teenagers, teenagers, guys, you have difficulties. You have stuff going on at school. You have things going on in family relationships. Grown-ups, I mean, with stuff at work, stuff in your own family relationships. I mean, we all have difficulties. We all experience loss. We experience these different things. What might it look like from a biblical or a faith-centered way of approaching difficulty? Here are a couple things. Number one, I would always want to encourage everyone to call it like it is. Sometimes in people of faith get this idea that they need to pretend that things aren't as they are. Maybe, you know, like, put out your chest and, well, if I think more positively about this, maybe God will honor that in some way and, and, and God will be impressed with my, you know, my pretense and, and maybe that I'll will it into existence that my situation's not so crappy. I don't really see that with Job. I see Job going the other way. Job's like, this sucks. Like, this is the worst thing ever. Forget the day I was born. Curse the day I was born. This is awful. 
difficulty is not awesome. It's not. Difficulty is not great. And I would say that it's completely inescapable. There's nothing. This has been especially difficult for me this week, even thinking about this. Christy and I live five blocks from Esplanade Avenue, where uh, the people leaving Endymion were run over last week by a drunk driver. And it turns out that we actually have many friends who are mutual friends with the people. Uh, Christy, actually, one of the young women uh, who is still in the hospital in critical condition was a, wo- a young woman that Christy worked hand-in-hand with to pull off the Mid-City uh, Christmas party. You guys remember when we participated in that? And Christy was partnered with one of the young women who is in the hospital today hanging on to her life. And the other people were their friends. And, and as Christy and I woke up the next morning and we walked the, 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 the route on Esplanade and we walked up and down just taking in the tragedy and allowing ourselves to feel and to experience and to pray for those. And to, it was one of those things that's like, this is absolutely senseless. This is completely senseless. This should not have happened. And yet, we do live in a world where senseless things happen. We can't ignore that. And I don't want you to ignore it. And I don't think being a person of faith says that you have to ignore it. Call it like it is. Job calls BS. You call it like it is. The scriptures are a guide for us many times. Read the Psalms. David calls it all the time. David calls God to account all the time. God, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? The second thing, call it like it is, the second thing would be, I would encourage, is to embrace and to express your anger and your frustration. I, you know, I was taught from an early age that uh, you don't ever question God. I don't agree with that at all. I, I question God all the time because I figure that if God's not big enough to take on my questions, then God's really not big enough to be God. So question it. Express it. Express your anger. Express your frustration. I, I, I truly believe that's okay. Be honest. Job says, curse the day. Curse the day I was born. <laughs> but then the third thing I would say is in the midst of calling it like it is and expressing your anger and your frustration, I would also encourage everyone to hold on to God at the same time. So maybe with this fist we shake it at God, but maybe with this hand we hold on to God. Same same thing, but this one I'm shaking and this one I'm holding tight. Because part of being a person of faith is, well, where else will we go? Kind of a thing. And here's the beauty of it. Job's wife in chapter 2, she says to Job, she says, listen, Job, I've got an idea for you. How about you curse God and call it a day? But Job says, no, 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 no. That's foolish. I will shake my fist at God and I will ask God. And I will call God to account, but I will not curse God. Because Job had something deep within him that the Apostle Paul later tells us. In Romans chapter 8, listen to this passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 28, where the Apostle Paul says this, I consider that my present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, listen, here's the thing, all of creation waits with expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And he says, we know that the whole creation's been groaning for God to come. Not only this, but we ourselves, 
we are the fruits of the Spirit and we groan for God to come. It is in this hope that we are saved, hope that is not seen, but hope that we have. Because we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love Him. Now listen, it doesn't say that God causes all things to happen. It says that when things happen, no matter what things do happen, God has this amazing way of figuring out how to bring good about, even in the worst situations. Now, can we all agree that you need some time between the worst situation of your life and you need some, some space in there to be able to look back and say, oh, I hated that situation, but I do see something that came out of it. It's, it's, it's always a looking back. But as a people who are constantly looking forward to what God is doing, as we move in that direction, we also know by faith that at some point, something good comes out of it. Because God has a way of working things. So we hold on to God. And then the last thing I would say is, allow yourself to be formed in the process of difficulty. I once heard someone say, don't waste your sorrows. In this life, you'll have sorrows. In this life, you're going to have hard times. In this life, I'm going to have hard times. In this life, things aren't going to go our way all the time. Don't waste those sorrows. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, verse 3, Not only this, but we actually glory in our sufferings because we know that somewhere along the way, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. We say this at Mid City Vineyard all the time, but we are becoming the people we are going to be. But you don't just wake up tomorrow and you're all of a sudden the most merciful person or the most forgiving person or the most gracious person or the most generous person or the most forgiving person or the least judgmental person. As a matter of fact, the chances are, when you're doing your own thing, you wake up tomorrow, and if you're not watching it, and you're not connecting with the Holy Spirit, you actually could probably, quite possibly, be less merciful, and more judgmental, and less forgiving. But who really, does anyone want that? Do you want to wake up less merciful, less forgiving, more judgmental? I don't. But how do we, how do we develop in character? Well, we allow life and God together to shape us. And Paul says, look, the stuff that's going to happen is going to happen. It builds perseverance. Perseverance builds character. Character leads you to a place of hope. Growth in the spiritual life, one author says, requires, ado uh, 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 requires adopting a conscious habit of being. Too often we believe that changing places or changing circumstances in our life is the simplest way to change ourselves. We suffer from the grass is greener on the other side mentality. But if you've ever had junk in your life and you just changed space or place and you never dealt with the junk in your life, then you are fully aware that the grass is not greener on the other side because you take all your garbage with you to the other side. And eventually you kill the grass on that side also. So how else do we do it? 
Well, we, we buckle in. We settle in. We learn to express ourselves to God. We learn to express the frustration. We learn to hold on to God. And we learn to allow the stuff to shape us. The same author said that there may be no substitute for the instructive power of place in your life. Being present. The other thing that actually helps maybe at the same level of of being concretely rooted in a place is understanding that certain truths can only be learned by being emptied, by being frightened, or by being confused. The irony of the gospel is that it only becomes good news for those who are immersed in the bad news of their normal experience. When you actually embrace the bad news of just kind of, and I'm not, this isn't like doom and gloom, like, oh, all of life is awful and all of the world is, is terrible. No, like a lot of life is really good. But when you look at the grand scheme of things, when you look across the board, you realize that it could have been you on that bike last Saturday night just as easily. Christy and I and our five kids were walking home from Endymion Eight blocks parallel to Esplanade. Eight blocks over on Lafitte. And as we were walking home at 8.30, the exact same time that that man was running over those bikers, at the exact same time, eight blocks over, a Corvette came flying down Lafitte, probably about 60 miles per hour, right past our family, blazed through three stop signs heading from Jeff Davis to Broad. And we got home, and a friend texted us and said, Are you guys okay? I just heard that there was a, a hit and run, and people were killed on Esplanade. And it dawned on us just how quick. It, it could have, I, I don't know how the Corvette missed us. This guy was flying. And it dawns on you that, you know what? It's not a doom and gloom world, but stuff happens. None of us are exempt. So how do we allow the stuff that does happen to shape us, to form us? How do we allow ourselves to connect to the Spirit of God in the midst of all of it? And so I want to invite you this week as part of 40 Days of Sanctuary. Finding those spaces this week in your week. Finding those spaces where you allow yourself. You know, here are some of this week's practices. Uh, Tomorrow, consider current difficulties in your life and offer them to the divine, asking for grace to embrace them. Set aside five minutes, ten minutes tomorrow. Grab a cup of coffee. Get by yourself. Consider what you're going through and begin to ask God, what might it look like to embrace this and to learn from this and to walk, uh, allow you to walk through this with me instead of me just trying to figure it out by myself and so on and so forth. All the practices relate to this in some way, shape, or form. In addition to that, I want to give us a moment to reflect today. We're going to share communion together. Communion's the place. Uh, somehow our chalices got lost in the move. We kept everything. We kept everything in the move, but we lost our chalices. So today the juice is in our coffee mugs. But I would invite you to come as we're going to worship in song again, and we're going to come to the communion table. And here's what the communion table looks like for us as a community of faith. The communion table is built out of cinder blocks, and it's built out of fence boards. These heavy blocks and these rugged boards they represent the stuff in our lives. 
They represent the, 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 the addiction we carry around. They represent the, the, the stuff that, that weighs us down. And what we did is we took all the stuff of our lives and we brought it together and we built something beautiful out of it. A place where we could actually come and we could relate to one another. Where we can lay down our differences aside. And then we write on our communion table and we've written our political affiliations and we write our, our, our ages and we write our, our jobs and we write um, you know, our addictions and we write whatever kind of stuff we want to integrate into our community of faith. Like, hey, I'm, I'm a part of this community and my junk is your junk and your junk is my junk and my victory is your victory and your victory is my victory. Because in Christ, we're one humanity. In Christ, black and white, it's one in Christ, gay and straight, it's one. In Christ, young and old, it's one. In Christ, wealthy and poor, it's one. We are one in Christ. That's who we are. That's what Christ has done. And it's the place where Christ says, even I took on difficulty. But you take in my life. I invite you to take in my life, the bread that represents my body, the juice that represents my blood, and allow my life to be lived out in and with and through you. And so today, as we begin to sing together, I, I will invite you to just come to the table when, when you want to. And I'm just kind of navigate the room um, strategically so we don't all run over each other. But as I pick up the guitar, why don't we just uh, invite you to close your eyes and reflect on this for a moment. Thank you.